One of the fascinating things about complexity science is just the diverse range of systems it applies to. In this series, we've already looked at tipping points in ecologies and economies. We've talked about how COVID spreads in the lungs. And what brings all this together is complexity science. For example, positive feedback plays a critical role in making ant colonies robust, but it's also the driving force behind increasing returns in the economy. So studying one system helps us understand other systems. And today, you're going to hear all about bees. Today, you'll hear from Marit Peleg, faculty at University of Colorado Boulder and external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Marit's going to talk about how bees self-organize and produce sophisticated behavior. In this case, how thousands of bees are able to work out where their queen is. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Arit Pileg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. So we're going to talk about bees. Um, we're going to talk about some of the crazy and interesting things that bees do. And that's going to bring us on to a, a key concept in complexity science, which is self-organization. And we're also going to talk about a really interesting thing called agent-based modeling along the way. So why don't we start with bees? Why do we want to talk about bees? Yeah, let's dive in straight into the weirdness of bees. <laughs> they are a new social insect, which means that they have a division of labor that is related to reproductive success. So there's one queen, and she's the only fertile female, and she's surrounded by tens of thousands of individuals, and the majority of them are also female worker bees, and a small fraction, about 10%, roughly speaking, are drone males. So this is the a composition of a typical hive. This is a classic complex system, isn't it? Lots of interacting agents who are doing something that's much more than just themselves, and they can't talk to each other. Right. They cannot talk using human language, but they can communicate with each other using other communication signals. And that's actually some of the focus of my work. Give us an example of some of the ways they seem to be able to organize themselves. Yeah. So maybe the most famous one is the waggle dance, which I don't work on specifically, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning. So it's a movement that the bees do on top of each other when they're in a swarm or when they're inside a hive. It's called a waggle dance because there's actually a waggle part. So the bees are moving uh, right, left, right, left along a certain direction. And then they do an eight figure dance and go back to that waggle axis. And this simple movement is actually encapsulating everything that another bee needs to know about where is a particular useful spot around the hive, whether that's maybe a potential nest site or maybe that's a food source. That simple movement is encapsulating the direction to that target and it's calculated the relative direction of gravity in the sun. It encapsulates also what is the distance between the hive and that area. So the number of waggle dances, the number of moving right and left is translated directly into real world units of distance. 
And it also encapsulates information about how good that spot is. So if it's a food source, how good is the nectar, how sweet it is, you know, things like this. And that's encapsulated by repeating that dance more often for better sites and less often for other sites. So that's a very famous example of honeybee communication. But there's also more subtle ways in which they communicate with each other. And one of them is chemical communications, pheromones. And pheromones are basically molecules that are very volatile. So they diffuse very fast and they kind of decay very fast in time and space. So the communication is very restricted to the locality of that signal. So they use pheromones for more local communication inside the hive. And your team's work looked specifically at how they're able to use those pheromones to essentially build a global map of where the queen is. What does that mean? The queen is somewhere in the hive and she might actually not be that far away, but it's just really hard to know where she is when there's 10,000 other individuals of bees that are kind of dense and bumping into each other. It's going to be really hard to sense the queen's pheromones, again, because they decay very rapidly in time and space. And knowing the queen's pheromones is important because that guides what the hive does. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. First of all, there's only one queen. So it's really important that she exists in the hive. If she doesn't exist, there's ways in which the bees can deal with that situation, rectify that situation sometimes. But if she's in the hive and she's fertile and she's laying eggs, then everything is fine. So there's this general awareness of whether the queen is around or not. Just to get back to the previous point, there's only one queen. And that's the only way that the hive can maintain the number of bees that they need in order to survive. There's no other individual in that hive that can lay fertile eggs and increase the population size as bees die off. So the bees need to know, even if you're far away from the queen, what pheromones the queen is secreting at the time. Is that what they need? Of course, every individual, they have different pheromone glands, so they can produce different cocktails, so to speak, of pheromone combinations. And these pheromones, by the way, also evolve. They can use them to detect the age of an individual, whether they are from the same hive or they're foreigners who try to intrude into the hive. They can detect dead individuals. They use this really for a broad range of communication contexts. And same thing goes for the queen. But for the sake of our discussion, I think we can think about the queen as existing or not existing. And if she's existing, then how can the bees use pheromones to stay close to her and make sure that they are a coherent swarm surrounding the queen. Okay, yeah. So this is specifically about organizing around the queen. Which is very important. Yes, and how you know she's there even if you're far away. Exactly, yes. So explain how they do that. And this is back to the global map, isn't it? So let's imagine a situation where we have the queen in one corner of the hive box and there's a few bees that are further away from her and they're too far away to actually sense the pheromone of the queen. So these bees have no chance to find the queen unless they just do some kind of random search or maybe smarter version of search and they bump into the queen. And that's one way to solve that problem. Once they bump into the queen, they might transmit that information back to the less informed bees so they can more easily find the queen and aggregate around her. And they do so by creating pheromones of their own and transmitting them in a direction that is pointing away from the queen. 
towards the less informed bees, potentially. But again, we're talking about pheromones. So pheromones, they decay very rapidly in time and space. So if the bees that are far away cannot track or detect the queen's pheromones, how they would be able to detect these worker bees' pheromones? So what they do is something really smart. They create this chain of generating and amplifying that signal. Very dynamic network of chemical communication where new bees join that network. So newbies that are searching for the queen would sense the pheromones of the worker bees that started producing that signal, and they would amplify them and again direct them backwards towards the less informed bees, and then other bees would come from behind and do the same thing, and on and on and on. They can create chains of um, tens to hundreds of bees that amplify that signal, as we showed in our experiments. We're going to talk about the experiment in a moment, but one of the things that you did was you did some modeling of this as well. You did some agent-based modeling. So probably start with what was the goal of the modeling, and then let's talk about what is agent-based modeling. Agent-based models can be useful for specific goals. One is to really just start from nothing and build into the model some physical interactions. We can talk a little bit more about what that means for the bees and get an intuition to how the system evolves in the simulation, in the model. And that can be really helpful in later on designing the right experimental conditions to test some of the hypotheses that the model creates. And the general idea, I guess, is that models are slightly easier to run than dealing with real animals that have, of course, a mind of their own and not always doing what we hope they will do. So starting with a model is very helpful. It's a first step towards getting a physical intuition towards the system. And in complex systems modeling, we see agent-based models come up all the time. Pull back a bit. What's an agent-based model for people who aren't familiar? It's very vaguely defined, but the idea is that you have agents programmed into a computer simulation. And these agents can move around in a particular simulation environment. They can interact with the environment. They can sense cues from the environment. And they can also interact with other agents in the environment. And usually these simulations are programmed following simple rules of behavior, where even though the rules are very simple, sometimes they evolve into unexpected collective behaviors of the group of the agents in the simulation. And a key piece of these models, isn't it, is that you're not defining global rules like you would in traditional physics models or engineering models. You're defining local interactions between the agents or local interactions between the agent and the environment. Exactly. So agents might be able to sense their local environment the particular pixel that they are standing on in the simulation, but they don't have the knowledge of what's happening in everywhere in the environment of the simulation. And the same thing for interacting with other agents. They might be able to interact with nearest neighbors, next nearest neighbors, but they're not going to be able to interact usually with individuals that are very far away from them in that simulation environment. And the reason for that, of course, you can program global rules and make your life easier as a programmer, the reason to program these local rules is mimicking some of the limitations we have as biological agents. So we have limited cognitive capabilities. We can sense our local environment. Of course, I can see you. I can see my computer screen. I can hear you. But if I would go further away, you know, I wouldn't be able to do these things. And that's what the locality of the local rules of behavior is trying to implement. 
The example I find really useful in this is the traffic model or the models of traffic congestions in cities where you're essentially able to put in the environment, which is the road network, and then you're able to put in each of the agents, which is the cars, and then give them exactly those sort of simple rules that you interact with the car in front of you and the car behind you and the car beside you, but the car that's 10 cars ahead, you're not interacting with it in a direct sense. You're just interacting with the cars around you. And all of that happening together that produces the overall behavior. And I, I quite like the line of you define these simple rules about how cars move, but the emergent phenomenon you get is the traffic jam. Even though you haven't designed a traffic jam into the model, you've got one. I think about this a lot when I'm stuck in a traffic jam. <laughs> <laughs> so in your bee model, what was the local interactions between the bees that you defined? So the local interactions were producing chemical signals and sensing chemical signals, primarily because we were dealing with pheromone-based communication. And so a bee can decide to start producing these chemicals spontaneously. That behavior, by the way, in the biological jargon is termed scenting, because the bees are producing scent. And a bee that senses the pheromones of the queen has a decision to make. She can either start scenting and amplify and propagate that information backwards to the less informed bees, or she can start walking in a direction that increases the pheromone concentration. So we're assuming that a bee can sense its local environment as a typical agent-based model. It can sense the chemical concentration in front of it, the back, right and left, and it's making a simple calculation to walk towards the higher concentration, which is more likely where the queen or other informed bees are. So you're saying it has a decision to move either closer to the queen or to start propagating the scent. So is there a sort of a cutoff point rule for the bee? Exactly, yeah. So there is a concentration threshold and above that concentration threshold, first of all, they detect that there is pheromones in that environment. So they have to make the decision whether to propagate the information backwards or walk towards the queen. In our case, we set it to be a probabilistic decision making. So it's a stochastic process that was inspired from information we knew from our experiments. But it doesn't have to be. It could also be more informed or more deterministic. So what did you find in your models? So what we found in the models is that, first of all, as a proof of concept, we showed that bees can use this directional chemical signal, sensing locally, producing that signal locally, but eventually use that information in order to create a global map to the queen and also aggregate around the queen. These are the two outcomes of that model. And this was consistent with your experiments that you did. Exactly, yes. And that's where the model and experiments connect to each other. We can make predictions with the model and then test them experimentally and see whether indeed that simple agent-based model with local rules can explain what the real-life, more complicated biological system does. Tell us about your experiment. How did you do the experiment? Yeah, so the experiments are, they're done in our lab. So we bring in a swarm of honeybees, about 10,000 bees and a queen to the lab. And we put them in our experimental arena, which is semi-two-dimensional. And we kind of look at it from the top. So the bees are not flying. They're more or less walking on that surface. And looking from the top, we don't have any occlusions and flying bees. So we can see really what's going on. And we place the queen in one corner of the experimental arena. And the rest of the worker bees at the further away corner of that experimental arena. And then we can see what the bees do, how much they scent, how they explore the environment, and eventually also aggregate around the queen. Do they basically behave in the same way as the model predicts? 
Yeah, exactly. So that's really the amazing thing. It's in really good agreement. So when we analyze our experiment, we see that the bees indeed scent. They produce those chemicals in a direction that we can then integrate into a global map. So the directions that they decide to send towards is really meaningful and important for that process to be efficient. The key thing here is that these bees are using very simple local rules to have incredible organization and that self-organization, we call it, that we see it in a lot of complex systems. Exactly. Yes. What broadening out a little bit into just the concept of self-organization, what other systems do we see this in? It actually relates very deeply to a more classical biophysical system of aggregation of social amoeba. So it's much smaller, but it's been very well studied in the biophysics community. Social amoeba are amoeba that at harsh environmental conditions, they aggregate into spores and they aggregate in a very similar way. They produce chemicals let other nearby individuals know that this aggregation is taking place. And they also sense, of course, the chemical information that is coming from other individuals, follow simple rules of going up the gradients of the chemicals, and then eventually aggregating into a blob that has a higher probability of surviving in these harsh conditions. And the difference is that the bees have the trick of the directionality of the signal. So something that I actually didn't mention is that the bees produce the pheromones and they also fan their wings. So by creating this airflow, they have the control of deciding in which direction these chemicals will be transmitted. And it's the only system in nature we know of that does this smart extension of that more classical biophysical problem. And one of the, the pieces with this is that there's no central controller. While the queen is there and is the center of all activity. It's not the queen that's organizing this behavior around herself. It's the interactions with the bees. What does this tell us? You know, if you go to sort of trying to apply these sort of findings to, if we were to go design a system that we wanted to be able to self-organize itself in, in certain ways, what does this sort of work tell us? Sorry. There's quite a lot of interest in designing artificial systems that can do what the bees do, aggregate and create more complex three-dimensional structures in unknown environments. And that's something that the bees seem to be very good at, be very efficient at, and evolved ways that over eons of evolution to perfect some of these tasks. And that's one of the main reasons that people think that bio-inspired design is a good approach to explore. And it's because it's that bottom of individual interactions. You don't have to pre-program what every agent in that pre-programmed system does. You're actually giving the agents autonomy in some level to interact with one another. And hopefully we get this emergent behavior coming out the end of it. Exactly. And it means also that the network is more robust to failure of individual nodes, robots, or bees in that sense. And as you said, there's no main hub or the queen is not really telling everybody what to do. It's completely distributed. And if something happens to one of the bees, then the rest of the bees can still manage to achieve their biological function. And the same thing would go for technology. All right, Pilate. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 